Well, amen and good morning. And we needed that help to encourage our worship this morning. Amen. Thank you to our worship team and uh, just to each one of you. Bless you for leading us into his presence. God bless you for uh, making the time today to uh, spend this time with us, the Alamo City streaming family. And a good many of you here in the house, even though we continue to get um, information and in some ways warnings about the, the, the virus continuing among us, we need to be in prayer for the healing of some even within our Alamo City family who have uh, contracted the, the sickness and we're believing that the Lord is able to raise up, to restore and, uh, and to just finish his work in our lives while we're on this earth. When our, when our days are up, when it's time for us to go home, we need to be wanting to go home. Do I get a witness? You know, I mean, we can fight so hard to stay here when, and, and we, we realize the human side of us. We've never been to heaven yet. But oh my goodness, the stories about that place are just so incredible. And, and, um, and he, he, when it is time, is going to take us to the Father's house. And everybody who's already been promoted up there, we're going to be seeing again, hugging the necks of, and thanking the Lord for, and loving Jesus face to face. You know, folks, there are some amazing things going on in our country right now. Now, we could point out a few amazing things that would be that are difficult for us to swallow, difficult for us to deal with or to accept. But I want to mention one thing that I believe is strikingly wonderful and is an evidence of God's fresh move of power among his people. And you know what it is? I believe that there are literally millions of folks in this country who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They're not just ones who check a box to be in church on Sunday or flip God a quarter every once in a while or just would morally nod their head at the goodness of Jesus. I'm talking about folks who know him, who have answered the knock on the door of their hearts, and they've invited Jesus Christ to come and live inside them and save them and rescue them. I say them, but it's us. It's us. And God, I believe, is calling millions of those who know him to pray for this nation. I, I, you know, I, I'm not even going to tell you how old I am, but I'm old enough to die in some ways. But as long as I've lived, as long as I've lived, I don't know that I have ever had the sense of this many lovers of Jesus praying fervently, fervently for the United States of America. But folks, we don't have to know what's coming. We don't have to know how he's going to do what he's going to do, but I'm telling you, you can go to the bank on this. 
when God stirs up multitudes of his people to pray a focused and an agreed prayer, something is coming. Something is coming. Something is coming. So you may be listening to this today and you may feel very alone. You may feel as if it it doesn't make much sense to be praying the way you are led to pray. Don't you stop. And don't you give in for one minute to the lie of the enemy that you're by yourself. And what good is it doing? And God, does God really hear? And I'm, I'm some little old voice out in the middle of nowhere. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are linked up with millions, with millions of other brothers and sisters in Jesus who are being stirred in the same way to pray. Maybe not the exact same words, but the cry of your heart is the same. Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit on this land one more time. Lord Jesus, heal this nation, heal the broken places, set right the things that would be wrong and dishonest and cause your name to be honored and glorified and magnified. Let the name of Jesus be shouted again in praise and worship on the streets, not just in the churches, but in the streets of the United States of America. I don't believe for one minute that God's finished with us I believe that it remains our commission, it remains our assignment on planet earth to be a place from which the message of the good news of Jesus Christ can be launched literally around the world and can saturate the hearts of those who live in this nation. God bless America. God bless America. That's, that is our heart. That is our cry. And I, and I want to just say that because I'm telling you, as long as I've lived and we've been through some ups and downs and you know, many of you would know troubled spots, but I don't know that I have ever sensed as many of God's people praying for there to be a fresh work of his spirit and a healing by his spirit of our country that are being prayed, that are praying right now. So be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged. Now with that being said, I want us to spend just a few minutes this morning on this subject. Rock solid in a shaky world. Rock solid in a shaky world. Will you take your copy of the scripture and turn to the book of Matthew and Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus poses to his disciples this very interesting question. And it ends up being a discussion that forms the foundation of our understanding of what the true church is supposed to be all about. So let's pick up Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when G, I want to stop a minute. I just need to stop and pray. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. We can't go on without you. This country can't go on without you. We are desperately in need of your visitation. We are desperately in need of your touch. And Lord, our cry would be that you would do it now. You would do it today. There would no, be no hesitation. 
but that you would come and visit your people and visit this nation, that your name be, may be praised and glorified. And Lord, we ask now that you will take your word and by your spirit, you will set these words on fire in our hearts. Lord, I pray for faith. I pray for the ability to believe, the ability to be persuaded of the truth of your heart would just sweep over our souls this morning. Lord, would you set these words from your word literally on fire? Burn them into our hearts, we pray. Do your work in us today, in Jesus' name. And all the Lord's people said, amen. I just had to get that out. It, 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 uh, we couldn't keep that in. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is, speaking of himself? Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the one who has been promised to come. You are the one who has been endued with heaven's power to rescue, to redeem, to save, to set free, to restore. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, revealed who I am to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter. You are a stone. You are a small rock. And upon this rock, this bedrock, this stratum of rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Jesus uses two different words to speak of rocks. One rock, the little rock, is Peter the person. But the great, big, massive bedrock, the stratum of rock, is Peter's declaration of who Jesus Christ really is and who Jesus is to Peter. It was the declaration of Simon Peter's faith in who Jesus really is, the Savior, the Redeemer, the rescuer, the son of God. And Jesus said it is on the basis, it is on the basis of that confession 
from your heart, Simon Peter, not just the statement of the information, but the declaration of the truth as revealed to Simon Peter's heart by the Spirit of the Father, convincing Simon Peter this is who Jesus is. He's the promised one. He's the redeemer. He's the rescuer. He's the restorer. He's the friend of sinners. He's the one who sets the captives free. Simon Peter was making that declaration, folks, from the chamber of his own heart, not from the corridor of his brain, but from that which he had been convinced was true. It didn't make Simon Peter perfect from that day on, but it was a declaration of the truth of who Jesus is that he was persuaded was true. And folks, that is what Jesus said he would build his church upon. That it would be built upon individuals out of all the ages of the church, all the history of the church and the the years of humanity, those whom the Father by his spirit has personally and uniquely and definitively convinced who Jesus Christ is. It's upon that rock that I will build my church. The word for church is an English word that comes from a German word that, that, that it, it doesn't speak to the full extent of what Jesus was saying there. He, he, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia is the word. It means the called out ones, the ones who have been called out of the conclusions of the rest of the world, conclusions of the pursuits of other things as the priority, but called out and called to me, called to Jesus, the affection, the loyalty, the passion lit in their hearts is a devotion to the person of Jesus the Christ. Oh goodness, oh my goodness, that's the true church. There may be denominations and there may be sects and there may be individuals that that can seem to to evoke or call forth some type of, of loyalty or devotion. Many of us have come to know Jesus through agencies or ministries and denominations or or preachers who have preached or folks who have prayed for us. But here the essence, the heart of this is, Jesus is saying the true church is going to be made up of those who may have come to know me from different directions and from different, different packages and different expressions, but they have come to know me and their loyalty is to me. To me, to Jesus, not first a Baptist, not first a Catholic, not first a Republican, not first a Democrat, but first, finally, and foremost, my heart is loyal to the one who rescued me, who who saved me, who's forgiven me, who's preparing a home in heaven for me when it's time for me to go. My passionate loyalty is the person of Jesus Christ. That is the bedrock upon which the true church of Jesus is built. Amen. Now, folks, that's so timely. That's so important for us to be called back to that 
at this season in the life of the American church because there is such division. Some of you wouldn't want to admit there's division in the true church. There is on both sides of the aisle, lovers of Jesus, confessors of Christ as Savior and Lord, but will have different conclusions regarding elections, etc. That which will set everything in its proper perspective is when the believer in Jesus, the follower of Jesus, returns to the place that my first priority is to my Savior. Secondarily, tertiarily, is everything else. I am a Christian who may vote this way, but my loyalty is to Jesus. And that means that what I should be expressing is a life that reflects what I believe would honor Jesus Christ. Not that which would honor some system or some denomination or some person. But I am bedrockly fixed at this place. The one who loved me, the one who chose me, the one who called me out of darkness into light is the one who is worthy of my honoring him with my choices and the way I would determine to live my life. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is King Jesus. It is Savior Jesus. It is Rescuer Jesus. It's just Jesus. The true church is all about Jesus. First, foremost, and everything else comes below. Amen. At this time in the life of our nation, may God restore the hearts of his people to that singular loyalty to the person of Christ. Asking Jesus what pleases you, what honors you in how I vote, in how I speak, in the choices that I make. What pleases you, Savior? And folks, when that returns as the priority of the church, there's going to be great healing among us, of which we will rejoice in. All right, so this, it, is this, it is this loyalty to the person of Jesus, this loyalty to the person. Some folks will say, well, Pastor, why don't you deal with some of these issues? Why don't you step off into some of that stuff? Because there are nine million other preachers doing that. You can get it anywhere. But here's what I believe is the heart of God. It is that we fall all over again in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we praise him, we talk to him, we rejoice in him, And anybody who knows him is my brother or my sister. Regardless of what side of any aisle we sit on, Jesus is preeminent. And in that place, there is life and there is hope and there is freedom and there is fellowship. Okay? Just needed to get that out of my system. Picking up on that and taking it a step. Where there is that rock solid conviction in your heart of who Jesus is, 
of who he really is, not just theoretically, not just even from the teachings of Scripture, but who he is to you, who he has become and continues to become to you. We find ourselves blessed with the realization that he is a rock in the middle of battles. He is a rock. He is a rock. He is a rock. And the the confidence that he gives us in him becomes that emotional stability that we're going to need to face, to walk through the battles. I want to show you, or just ask you to turn with me to the book of Joshua quickly. We won't try to read all of the story of Joshua and the Israelites fighting the battle of Jericho, but there is a principle here, folks. And, and, and child of God, I just want to encourage you to, to find this in your own copy of the Scripture. And let, let me read the words and then make, make one or two comments. This is Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Moses has gone on to heaven now. Joshua is in charge, leading the people into the possession of the land of Canaan. But there was one city after they'd crossed the Jordan River. There was one city that had to be taken before there could be any legitimate possessing of their inheritance in Canaan, and that was the city of Jericho. It was a powerful city-state, known and recognized in that time of history of being virtually an impregnable fortress. Walls thick enough, the two or three chariots, they would say side by side, could could go all the way around the city wall. Thick. The, the, The people in Jericho feared no enemy because of the strength of their walls. And Jericho had to be taken for the people of God to possess their inheritance. Verse 13. And what came about when Joshua was by Jericho, the people have crossed the Jordan Joshua is surveying the potential battle scene. He's by Jericho. It doesn't say whether it was morning, afternoon, or middle of the day, but he was there looking over the future scene of battle. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you for them? And he said, the man he was talking to said, no, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So who was this? Who was this that was talking to Joshua? Who is this captain of the host of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 2 gives the answer. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors, and you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. 
Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a giant with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Who was this who met Joshua outside the walls of Jericho? It was Jesus before Bethlehem. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, before Mary, his mother, had ever been born, before any of the things that would be surrounding his physical birth, from heaven being born as a man, would ever happen. Jesus Christ was alive, and he was in charge of the armies of heaven, angel armies, warring angels with the ability to do the bidding of God wherever they are needed. Now here's the point. Here's the point. Joshua, from a human standpoint, asked the question, you on our side or you on their side? The Lord answered this way. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. Now, folks, that's how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be praying in this day and in this hour for the life of our country. God, not are you for us or are you for them. It's to pick up on the truth right here. The Lord Jesus Christ and his angel armies hasn't come to tip the scale in one favor or another by one side or the other. He's just, he doesn't know how to be anything else but God. He doesn't know how to bow the knee to anything or anybody or any system. When he comes, he comes to take over. Now, you know, folks, I, I feel like that's happening as Christians are praying across our country, many of them. Lord, we don't, we don't need to tell you what to do. We, we don't need to inform you of a battle plan or a healing plan. We just need you. We just need you. We just need you. I believe the Lord would want to say to us today, rock solid, that our faith, our commitment to him would be rock solid in shaky times. And that part of what would inform our faith is understanding, hallelujah, that he's not a little bitty God. He's not some county seat kind of judge. He's not, he's not, some, he's not some military leader of a, of a fading army. He is the king of glory. He is the Lord of hosts, and our confidence can be he's not come to take sides, but he's come to take over. Lord, take over. Lord, take over. Lord, take over. All right? Now, what happened was, and it's significant that he's named as the captain of the Lord's hosts. 
The peculiar thing about that, however, he was just seen as one individual by Joshua. But he represented, he represented an unseen, vast number of angelic warriors. And when the people followed the instruction that the commander of the host of the Lord gave, and on that seventh day, after that seventh lap on the seventh day, and the people began to shout, that evidently was a signal for the invisible angelic army that hadn't been seen or noticed at all. But at the time that the people obeyed the Lord with his instruction, that released the angelic army to do what the angelic army was there to do. Amazingly, mysteriously, but supernaturally, the walls of Jericho that were thought to be permanent, inflexible, impregnable, began to crumble. Why did they crumble? Because the angel armies had sledgehammers of some sort or some means and were just knocking the fool out of Jericho's walls. God will never be outmanned or outgunned. Your God, your Jesus, will never be outgunned or outmanned. Move, move just a few books over in your Old Testament to this awesome story of Elisha in, Eli in 2 Kings chapter 6. And verse 8, Let me, I'll just quickly skim through this. But the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, Elisha, would hear that. The spirit would let him know what the plans of the king of Aram were, and he would send word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. So, and so the, the, the king of Aram just got fighting mad because it seemed like this prophet Elisha was, was somehow tuned in to the secret counsels that he was given to his warring ministers because he could never pull off a surprise attack because Elisha already knew about it and told the king of Israel. How about that? Don't, don't you think, don't you think for one minute that the Lord and his spirit are just tied up to a church building? or just tied up to things that would be talked about in a Sunday school class. He's interested in everything you're interested in and you're involved in. He has the ability to speak wisdom and counsel and warning to his people wherever they are in the middle of whatever they're doing. And that was, that was Elisha to the king of Israel. But Aram, the king of Aram, just thought, I gotta deal with my, this problem source. So he, he, sends, he sends an army and he finds out where Elisha's hold up or where Elisha is. And this is verse 15, 2 Kings 6, 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God, the attendant of Elisha had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, do not fear. For those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. To which you can imagine that young servant looking back at that old prophet and saying, the old man's slipping. The old man's losing it. He's seeing things. He was seeing things. Look at the rest of this. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Folks, listen. When the God of glory, when the God, the Lord of the angel armies, enters the fray, he will not be outmanned or outgunned. He will win the day. That's why it is vital to the church. Instead of worrying about God, are you on our side? Our question needs to be, Lord, are we on your side? Are we on your side? Because he doesn't come to take sides, he comes to take charge. May the church be found in that place of humility, that place of an open heart. Lord, here are things that concern us. Here are things that we we could wish would be corrected and corrected soon. But what we understand about ourselves is that we only seem partially. We only see in an incomplete fashion. You see everything. And we're inviting you. We're calling upon you not to come and just defend us, but we're calling upon you to come and take charge. And with him, he brings access to those same warring angels that took out Jericho, those same angels. So we don't have any case that, that the angels die, that these, these armies, they've got a cemetery for, for, for angel veterans up in glory somewhere. The ones who fought those battles then, the ones who showed up then, are the ones who are alive right now and are able to come to the support and the defense of that which the Lord says needs to happen. Amen. 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 All right. He doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take charge. But here's something else. This this rock, this this rock-solid position that the Lord wants us to have of our faith in Him, our trust in Him, that He by His Spirit is able to strengthen, and He desires to do that. Here's another part of that. This truth. Not just when a battle comes, But when a storm hits, he wants you to hear, you're not going down, you're going through. You're not going down, you're going through. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus, Sea of Galilee, John or Mark chapter 4, verse. 35, and on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. Will you remember that he said that? Just just hang on to that. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them just as he was in the boat. 
and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and sea and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? And how is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Jesus said, as they were getting into the boat, we're going to the other side. He didn't say, oh, by the way, all hell is going to break loose between here and there. He just said, we're going to the other side. The wind became so, so severe, the waves so high, the boat filling up with, with, with water, that these experienced men who had made their living on the Sea of Galilee were frightened. They used the word perishing. That, that, that's not we're just we're in danger or we're in trouble. That word means we're dying. We are being destroyed. And then they come at Jesus and they question him on two fronts. Lord, do you even care? Do you not care that we are perishing? They questioned his heart. They, they, questioned, they questioned his heart, but then they also flagrantly were questioning the outcome. You may be there. All hell may be breaking loose in the storm that has come upon you. But here's what I believe the Spirit of the Lord would say to you. What have I said to you? What have I told you? I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. What can separate you from the love of God? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or heaven or hell or seen or unseen? Nothing can cut you off from the love of God to your heart. And if he's loving you, he's holding you. If he's loving you, he's going to finish what he started with you. If he's loving you, the storm will not last forever. You're not going down. You're going through. You're going through. You're going through. You're going through. That, that rock solid conviction that the spirit of the Lord Jesus working in our hearts wants us to live by carries with it that truth. I'm not going down. I'm going through. You see, he, 
There's somewhere this, 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 this freaky interpretation of Scripture that, that proliferates itself among certain segments, I think, even within the, within the church, that, that if you get all your formulas right, you get all your verses down, you get all your, your, you know, your Banny Rooster attitude up and right, then you can just rebuke everything that messes with you. You can just call down plenty whenever you want to name that sucker and claim it. Where is that in this book? Where is it? If that was how it's supposed to work, Jesus would never have allowed these men that he was investing the whole future of the redemptive plan of God to the human race into. He would have spared them storms. He would have spared them seasons of lack. He would have made sure they had a, they had a massive you know, bed to sleep on every night and a pillow underneath their head. They slept on the ground. Many of them died penniless. Paul said, Timothy, bring my coat and bring my books. That's all the man had. If there was a formula, Paul missed it. If there was a formula, Jesus never spoke it. But here's what he said. I will never leave you. and I will never forsake you. And where I am, my presence, my power, my ability to meet your needs will be manifest. You can count on me. You can trust me. I'm so thankful that these stories are in the book. Because the, the vast majority of the church may be experiencing more storms and more battles than there may be these massive breakthroughs of all kinds of abundance and plenty. He's able to do that. And we read Deuteronomy 28, you know, 400 times a year around here. It is his heart to bless. But there are some things that are greater blessings than having money, than you, more money than you can spend. What if the greater blessing is the sense of his presence, the sense of almighty God, the loving Jesus, present in your storm, not worried, not afraid, not doubting the outcome, but he can seem like he's sound asleep. And here comes a storm. And then to the believer, it behooves us to ask ourselves, what did he say when we started? We're going to the other side. We're going to the other side. Nothing about sinking, nothing about swimming, nothing about not making it. We're going to the other side. A brother, a sister, let the Spirit of the Lord refresh you and encourage you. Folks, listen, some of you who have the greatest stories of faith, the greatest the triumphant testimonies of how real the Lord is are those of you who have gone through one storm after another storm, one battle after another battle, and you hadn't gone down yet. They, they, they've tried to suck life out of you. They've tried to defeat you in various ways, but you're, st you're still wanting to climb that mountain more now than you ever did when you first started because of the strength and the sense of his presence near you. That brings to the last point I just want to leave with you, and it's, it's so awesome. It's so wonderful. It's, it, it needs to be that which is a reality of every believer. If you would find 
all the way toward the end of your New Testament, this statement by the Apostle Paul at the end of the last letter that he wrote before he was martyred. There was a season of time after he wrote 2 Timothy, he was freed, but then he was rearrested and he was eventually martyred. But this is the last written record that we have from the Apostle Paul. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Battles, storms, alone and in trouble. Alone and in trouble, fighting worry and afraid. At first glimpse, you would just think that these are the words that the Apostle Paul, after all, he's the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, kind of special in the eyes of the Lord, that, 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 that maybe this is how it was going to be with him, that the presence of Jesus would be so real to the Apostle Paul that it was literally as if for him Jesus was standing there. And the Jesus who was standing there strengthened him, encouraged him. Whether it was the words, some words that Jesus spoke, or whether, folks, and this is what I believe it was, it was just the sense of the presence of Jesus. Jesus didn't need to say anything, but his presence established he is Lord. He is in charge, ultimately, of all of the affairs and the outcomes of men and of nations. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords, and he's standing right there. You and I, all these centuries later, we can read a verse like that, that verse in particular, and say, oh my goodness, that must have been the biggest part of why Paul just kept on going. Going to one town and, and, and half the city is applauding his message of Jesus and the other half the city is trying to throw him in jail or stone him. Driven out of town on a rail time after time after time, more familiar with prisons than he was even a home of his own, which he didn't have. Why did he keep going? 
How could he keep going? Folks, I know the Lord spoke something to him. You, you'll be my, my ambassador, my, my, my apostle to the Gentiles. You, you'll bear testimony of me before kings and, and, and national leaders. All of those things were said about him. But if you ever had a word spoken to you, a word of encouragement spoken to you, or maybe you found a verse of scripture that the Lord seemed to be speaking to you, but then after a little while, a little persecution, a little cloud cover over the sun, not quite as bright, you can find yourself closing that up and putting that on a shelf and trying to go on with your life. How did Paul not just go on with his life? How was it that he, that he kept on pursuing? I just want to, I believe it's because he didn't know just about Jesus in his brain. He felt Jesus in his presence. He felt like when Jesus said, follow me, that literally is what Paul was doing, following him. But the Lord stood with me. But the Lord, surely sitting here, if I, if I came back and told you, but surely stood with me. You would know that wasn't just about the, the, her, her support from out in the distance or, or that there was some kind of agreement out there. You would have the sense that somehow physically she was standing with me. Now, I know this reaches out yonder and some folks are saying, I don't know if I can go that far, but those of you who would dare to ask, Lord, is this what you mean? I'm telling you, it is a doorway into a measure of stability in the storms of your life and in a doorway into a place of confidence of who you are in the hand of the Lord, that he would care enough about you for you for him to make his presence known to you, felt to you. I'm not afraid to use that word. Paul said he stood there. It wasn't physically, but somehow he felt the presence of Jesus standing there with him. Okay, I believe Paul had learned how to pray that, to ask for that. And as a result of how he learned early in his walk with Jesus, he's just reporting something in 2 Timothy 4 that had been a way of life for him. The sensing of the presence of Jesus. If you're skeptical, and I understand how you'd want to be skeptical, will you look with me at the words from the Bible? Will you look with me and we would say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right? Paul, Paul writes this after we hear him describing the presence of Jesus strengthening him. As if it was not something that was that unusual to him. This is Ephesians 3 and verse 16. Paul praying for the Ephesians. As a result of reading this, we understand how we can pray for each other and what the will of the Lord would be for our hearts, for our lives. But folks, I'm telling you, this is how Paul prayed for himself. 
I believe this is a testimony of how Paul would pray for himself. And as he prayed this for himself, he would pray it for those he loved and that he was trying to disciple. And here was his prayer that he, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Back up to verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, the inner man, the inner man. Where is this to happen? Incumbent upon the growing Christian to recognize that there is a difference in you, in all of us who know the Lord, between what Paul would say is the outer man and the inner man. The outer man, the outer person, is the one in touch with empirical reality with physical data-based information, with, with things that are measurable in the physical realm. But where Paul is saying Jesus will make his home, he will manifest his presence to you, is not in the outer man. So we have to, we have to be aware of that. We spend all our time focusing on the problems out there as if the only time we'll ever really find any peace in the inner man is if all of this outer stuff gets taken care of. As if Paul is just saying, you gotta recognize what's outer and you need to understand what's inner and what happens on the inner. The inner being your heart, your mind, your emotions, the invisible part of you, the inside of you, that spirit part of you that Jesus raised from the dead when he came to live inside you that it is in that place, in your heart, in your affections, in your emotions, your soul, your spirit. Paul is saying, you pray that God by his spirit will strengthen your inner man with the result being that Jesus Christ will make his home in your heart. You say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got Jesus in my heart. Do you feel him? Do you feel him? I've got Jesus in my heart. I know I'm going to heaven. That was true of the Ephesians. That was true of the ones Paul wrote the book to. They were saved. They had repented of their sins. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, the one who saved you wants you to know his presence in the home of your heart. By his spirit, for there to be such a work of his grace and power inside your inner man that you will know that Jesus is there. Can you imagine someone living in your house and you would not know, you would not feel the effect of their presence? They walk in your kitchen, they walk down the hallway, they're in the backyard. Somehow you would know. 
This is where it is taken out of just total faith, just total academic. I believe that Jesus is this and he died for me. This, this, is, this is beyond that. This, this is what Paul, he was writing to born again, saved on the way to heaven, Ephesians. But he's saying, I'm telling you, there's something more than information about Jesus. There is the experiencing of the presence of Jesus. The, the, the natural man, the outer man, may be fraught with all kinds of pulls and tugs and ups and downs and difficulties. That is not where Jesus lives in your heart. He lives a step back. He lives in that invisible part of you that he raised from the dead when your spirit was dead in sins, Ephesians 2, but he raised it to life again, and it is in that place where Jesus has the opportunity to dwell and to live. I, I mean, I, I, know, I know this can just kind of, it just kind of makes some, because you've got marked up Bibles, you've got discipleship manuals out the back door, but there can still be those seasons and those times when it seems as if God is so far away. Where is hope? Where's the ability to forgive? Where's faith to believe that he can do anything that comes from the sense of his presence alive and moving in your heart? I've told you earlier service, there are lots of times, often is the time, when I come across these passages, that I know are true. I believe every syllable of it is right and it's the word of God, but there's something about it that isn't connecting. It's not life to me. It's truth, but it's not life. And there are many times I'm putting this, I'm putting this Bible, open Bible up to my own heart and just saying, Lord, will you by your spirit make it real in me by your presence? Would you cause your word by the fire of your presence to burn in my heart? I don't want just a bunch of biblical information. I want to experience what it is for you to make your presence known. It's the only explanation for why Paul didn't quit and check out. It's the only reason why many of our brothers and sisters stay true to what God's called you to do through the difficult times. It's because somehow there can be the sense. Physically, I'm alone. I'm not alone. Jesus making his presence known to you. That's what Paul is talking about. That to the saved, going to heaven, blood-washed believer, there would be this step, this place where Christ makes his home in my heart. Where he is, it can seem everything changes. What did Paul say? Everybody abandoned me. I don't fault them. But the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me. And he enabled me to finish the task that he had given me to do. Oh, folks, that's the prayer that we should pray for each other and could look forward to the Lord answering that prayer. Here's, here's that statement. I will come to you. Jesus saying, I will come to you. I know you're saved. I know you're going to heaven, but that's not what I'm talking about. My manifest presence, 
my felt presence. So real as if Paul could say he was standing there. That wasn't just for Paul. And that wasn't just for the Ephesians. That's for us. I will come to you. Ask me. Ask me. But somehow we have substituted the measurable felt presence of Jesus for a copy of Scripture. We felt like the Bible should be enough. The Bible tells us about the one who wants to come and make his presence known in our lives. Never meant to take the place of the measurable felt presence of Jesus. Lord, it's your word. It's your word. These are just your words that you were saying to us, don't ask me to take sides. I'm coming to take charge. You're not going down. You're going through. And then I will come to you. Ask me. I will come to you. Ask me. May it be, Lord. May it be. May it be. Father, bless the praying church in the United States of America. Guide our thoughts. Guide our discernment. Guide our praying. We trust you to have mercy upon our nation, upon all of her people, according to your heart, your will, your timing, your way. In Jesus' name. Would you say his name with me? Jesus. You say that again? Jesus. Jesus. For those of you who are part of our, our streaming family, and there is a prayer request, there is a prayer need that you have that we could join with you in prayer. Just a short, enough for us to know how to pray. Pastor Walker at alamocity.org, a wonderful team of intercessors taking every one of those prayer requests very, very seriously. And we believe God is doing some things, many things, in answer to prayer. Let us hear from you if we can pray with you. Amen. Amen. Rock solid in shaky times by the power of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Pastor Walker.